Welcome to The Burning Word. I'm your host, John Perrine, and this episode is going to be interesting. Uh, just as a little bit of framing, I want to give you a vision of where we've been so far and talk a little bit about where I'm hoping to go in this next mini-ish series that we're going to be running. So, so far with The Burning Word, we've really built this podcast around the invitation to return to the Word so that you can encounter God again. If you listened all the way back to my very first episode, I've been fascinated by these three pictures in the scripture. The picture of the burning bush that's perpetually on fire and yet is never consumed. How Moses has this encounter with it where God is revealed to Moses and transforms who Moses is. I've been fascinated by the picture of the burning heart within Jeremiah, where as he's going to sort of push God away, as he's wrestling, perhaps even rejecting some of his vocational calling that God has put on his life, Jeremiah says, there is this word burning in my chest that I cannot help but speak and respond to. I love that image of Jeremiah. And yet the third image is the disciples on the road to Emmaus as they're walking with Jesus and as he takes them to the scriptures, as he unpacks the scriptures, walks them through the scriptures, and in this encounter with Jesus, particularly as he breaks bread, the disciples are going to finally see that which they could not, that Jesus had been with them the whole time. And as they reflect on it, they say, did you not sense that our hearts were burning within us? I think this is what happens when we encounter the word of God that leads to an encounter with God. It is a burning word. It heats us, it changes us, it challenges us, and it even can transform the very substance of ourself if only we would lean into these flames and listen to the word that is speaking to us. Yet for all that setup, I'm not actually gonna take us right now into another Bible study, and that's because I have been working for the last year and a half now on this doctoral program, and ironically, for all of my passion about the scriptures, my joy of unpacking the scriptures, I've sensed that there's actually some other questions that I need to get clear on. Some questions around particularly what it means to have an identity as a Christian in this current moment, this cultural climate in all of the ebbs and flows, the confusion, the tumult, the challenges, the political contests over identity. And so I have just for the longest time been fascinated by this figure that stands in the history of church, this figure of St. Augustine. I'm going to talk more about Augustine and give you some context if you've never met him before, but if you have, Augustine stands sort of at the forefront, the headwaters of all of Western theology. In fact, I think you could argue even more than that. Augustine is really one of the towering figures after St. Paul who has shaped the entire trajectory, not just of Christianity, but of culture and civilization as we know it. There is no contemporary philosopher when you move through even the 20th century that can avoid the shadow of Augustine as they have wrestled with everything from deconstruction to postmodernity to Marxism to nihilism to psychology to sociology. I mean, it's all there in the writings of Augustine. And so I want to spend some time in this series talking about why I think Augustine is so important to us, what pastorally matters is at stake, and why. Augustine's voice needs to sort of be resurfaced, uh, resourced, retrieved in the work of the 21st century church. And yet in this particular episode, where I want to begin is with a story, a story of where we find ourselves in modern culture. Why is it today 
that identity is so contested? What happened that got us to this point where we could be so frustrated and confused with each other over what identity is, why identity matters, and who we are, who any of us are when we either are quiet or alone, when we're facing the silence and solitude of a pandemic, or when we're thrusting ourselves out there on Instagram, on Twitter, on social media in general. And so this episode, I want to talk about what I believe is a crisis, a crisis that's been brewing for a long time in modern identity. I'm going to give you some deep theoretical cuts. So if you get bored by a deep dive into some history of Western thought, then you may just want to move on to the next episode. But if you're at least a little bit intrigued, I promise to tell you this story, the story of how we got here, a story that has a lot of other conversation partners who are talking about this right now. And so without any further ado, I'm going to dive into the crisis of modern identity. Okay, so to kick this conversation off, I think we need to just start practical and personal. I want to share a story from my life. So one of the memories that came to me as I've been thinking about this topic, as I've been pondering it, as I've been studying it, leaning in, is this memory from a summer trip that I took, a missions trip that I was with Camps Crusade. We were going on this big trip over to Eastern Asia. I was there with probably 60 some college students and every day was this intensely formative, if you've ever done these trips, uh, morning worship and teaching. There'd be small groups and training in the afternoon. We'd be having deep, rigorous conversations, all reflecting on who we were, who Jesus was, why Jesus mattered, what we were going to do together this summer as we were going over on mission to a different country, and lots of conversations we'd have about mission. I'm not here to talk about mission this episode. I'm here to talk about identity, because in this environment, for some reason, I found myself at 16 perplexed by this question And I remember writing down in huge letters on the very front of this journal that I would work through the whole summer, who am I? Who am I? Like, who am I? I I sensed, for any who are into Enneagram, I sensed the chameleon-like nature of my Enneagram 3. I think I'm probably an Enneagram 3, but even then, I get squeamish and squirmish. My wife, Jenna, would tell you, I just don't like the labels. I just don't want to be placed into the box of an identity. That summer, as I'm wrestling with this question, I'm wrestling with the sense in which, while I may not have had Enneagram language yet, while I knew my Myers-Briggs, for instance, while I had taken a number of spiritual gifts inventories and was answering all of these strategic questions about what role I was meant to play as far as the evangelist or the uh, shepherd or the teacher on the team, at the heart of it, at the heart of it was this sense of turmoil within me that if you really pressed me, I don't know that I could answer who I truly was. I didn't know who John Perrine was when it came to my identity. I don't know if this is a question you've ever wrestled with. I don't know if you've ever had a moment of clarity like I had this summer where it feels like your identity is something you just tend to stand on without thinking about it. You just move in and out of social circles. And typically, if you study the questions that we ask each other if you pay attention to how society functions. Most of us have this very stable group of friends and family who just have history with us, so they know us, even though each of them sort of knows us in a slightly different sense. When we show up to a new room, each of us is asked the repeated question, what do you do? And we tend to lean on, well, I'm 
I'm a student, I go to this school, I work at this company, I uh, inhabit this profession. And then, of course, as time goes on and as we continue to settle more and more and more into who we are, we begin to purchase homes that are very stable, we start to have children, and so we have these new identities of father or mother or husband or wife or uncle or aunt or CEO or entrepreneur or whatever it is. But when you get into those labels, particularly if you're in a season of flux, the interesting question is, are you that label? Like, does that label truly define you? Does it capture you? Does it summarize who you are? Can you answer, who am I really? What would you reach for when it comes to answering that question? Now, from the get-go, what I want to acknowledge as I think back on this memory at 16 that perplexed me, just this massive question, what is my identity? Who am I really? I was equipped at that time and was in a deeply formative environment that was there to reassure me that the basis, the foundation of my identity was that I was a Christian. That, for me, was a stable part of my family growing up. It was a stable part of the cultures that I often participated in. It was a steady reinforcement through friendships, which often took place in the church, around the church, in different ministry settings. Uh, took place through the habits and the disciplines that I, even at that young age, was doing, where I would read the Bible, where I would pray, where I would attend church, where I would go on retreats, different stuff like that. And yet, when I lean into that question, I think the challenge that many of us sense is that while we can cognitively answer, yes, I am a Christian, that is my identity, and maybe, just maybe, if you pushed even theologically deeper, and I think we should push theologically deeper, you can get into some more core affirmations like, I am a child of God, I am a son of of God. I am a daughter of God. I am adopted into God's family. I am one with Christ. As a union with Christ theology was immensely formative for me, continuing to explore this question of what my identity is. Yet even so, I just want to talk practically and realistically as a 21st century American and say that no matter how strong of a cognitive foundation I have, I still found that there was this structure missing the structure of my distinctive identity, not just my core foundation identity, that general sense in which Christians all can affirm and respond, I am one with Christ, I am part of the people of God. But that distinctive identity, the personalized identity, the individual identity, when you pressed on who I, John Perrine, was and am, I found myself struggling in need of direction and realizing I really didn't have in my evangelical Christianity, the tools I needed to answer this question, who am I really? Now, as I say all of that, uh, I've just been struck by this image, this image of Jesus talking about building your house on the rock versus building your house on the sand. I just want to be clear. If you don't have Christian cognitive, theological, doctrinal foundations, it is going to feel like building the house of your identity on the sand. It's just going to move and flux. And I think all of the intriguing cultural critiques and pastoral quips and pointed challenges to the superficiality of our 21st century culture are fair, and we're going to get into some of them. 
But I'm here with this challenging thought because I know most of you who are listening are either in some state of flux in your own Christian identity. I just want to talk honestly and acknowledge that even when you have Christian as that sort of stable foundational core, you still have work to do to build your house on that firm rock structure. And at 16, the only point I'm trying to make is that I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to answer this question. What is my identity? If you're listening, my hunch is that you yourself have gone through the same question at some point, and you yourself, like me, have done your best to answer this question. Again, I just want to run through the the pointers that most of us would make. Most of us have found immense help in something like the Enneagram that can give us a number that helps point our identity. Most of us find in our secure and stable relationships identity markers such as husband, spouse, father, daughter, son, etc. Many of us have also found that habits and disciplines and practices become one of the key reinforcers of identity. And so if you read the Bible regularly, if you attend church regularly, if you participate regularly in a Christian community, then it just becomes easier to associate, identify with, and pay attention to the Christian identity, that solid rock you are building on. And yet, I don't know, many of us have had great guidance in wrestling deeply with this question, who am I really when it comes to my identity? How, how as a Christian, am I meant to respond to that question? What direction or guidance do we have? So the hope of this mini-series, we'll see how long we end up going with episodes. The hope of this mini-series is I think we have a guide. I think we have an incredible guide. And one of the early figures of Christian history named Saint Augustine. If you've never met Saint Augustine before, he lived in the late 4th, early 5th century, so that's late 300s, early 400s. He lived right on the end of the Roman Empire's dominance in the West, uh, right on the other side of Constantine having become emperor, right on the other side of all of these major councils where the doctrine of the Trinity was being worked out and established and settled. And in some ways, it was just this pitch-perfect timing for Augustine to be caught between these two worlds. On the one hand, this world of newly emerging Christian theology and thought. It was like things had just settled enough that Augustine was able to lift his head up above the doctrinal controversies, above these really challenging questions around who God is, uh, what do we make of God, how do we speak of God, and Augustine, of course, was wrestling through all of those as well. But he's, he's got just enough stability from Christian thought to wrestle really deeply with some very important questions around what it means to be human before God, what it means to be a Christian before God, what identity means before God, his identity, our identity, how we answer this question. Even as he straddled this Roman, very sophisticated Roman empire that had a deep, deep fascination after Greek thought with this question of who we are, what we're doing here, what the empire's doing, uh, the glory and grandeur of Rome. And unfortunately, after Augustine is going to die, he dies right as the Vandals are pressing up against his city of Hippo. Rome had already been sacked by the time that he dies. The fascinating thing is that once Augustine dies, the Western Empire in particular is just going to kind of fragment and fracture, and it's going to take several hundred years before thinkers can begin picking back up the questions that Augustine was really wrestling with. And so He just stands as this fascinating, immensely important theologian who looked out 
and saw all of these really vast and important questions and happened to live in this moment of history where he could speak compellingly to offer some insight and some thought. Now, here's where I want to leave you dangling just a little bit. I want to talk about Augustine's thought, but this episode, I want to talk about where thinking went after Augustine, because in order to get back to Augustine, I think we first need to understand where we currently are, why we're here, and why this question of identity feels so hard to answer right now. It actually is incredibly challenging to talk about who you are, and there's a number of really important reasons why identity politics are so freighted, why we feel so polarized and divisive, why it's difficult, even more difficult than usual on something like a social media platform to figure out what you're posting, why you're posting it, what you're supposed to do with the response to the posts that you've offered. And so let me tell you a bit of a story about where thinking went after Augustine and why we got here, why modern identity is so challenging to answer. In order to keep you tracking and engaged, I want to talk about one major headwater, a major place, a pool of thought, if you will, from which three important streams are going to flow. They're almost like a headwater that has these three outlets, three rivers that are going to pour forth from this headwater, and these three rivers are going to converge on 21st century identity politics and the challenges that we're facing today. They're going to converge into this crisis, if you will. First, let's talk about the headwater. In order to understand identity after Augustine, the next place you have to go is the philosopher René Descartes. Do you remember Descartes? If you went to university, did you take a course on philosophy that you probably slept mostly through, you were immensely confused by, and yet this name inevitably came up, René Descartes. Who was Descartes? Why did Descartes matter? Well, Descartes lived in 1596 to 1650, so he lived right around the time of Martin Luther. So if you're tracking This is a long time after Augustine. A full thousand years of thought have flowed on. And yet this new pool, this lake, if you will, was building. And there's lots of reasons why it was building. But it's sort of beginning to be filled with these waters of thought that Rene Descartes was able to gather together and then was going to pour forth that was going to send out these three new streams that we're going to discuss. In many ways, Descartes has been called the father of modern philosophy. He often is seen as the father of the Enlightenment. He's in some ways the father of modernity. So Descartes is this turning point in history. And the reason why Descartes was so important is that he was just an incredibly intelligent guy. I think sometimes we give philosophers bad reps. We sort of boil them down to their one basic idea and then we dismiss their idea. But in his time, Descartes was a literal genius. He he was a mathematician who invented analytic geometry. He was a scientist who took on a number of early investigations that were utterly groundbreaking. He participated in the Dutch Republic, initiating the new Dutch golden age that would involve everything from politics to economics. And so there's this sense in which Descartes was doing everything. He was touching everything. He came from a wealthy, sophisticated background. He had parents who were influential in France. He got moved over to the Netherlands, and without going into all of the details of Descartes' life, which would be fascinating and worth an episode in and of itself, what you need to know about Descartes was that he ultimately was an iconoclast. He was entirely comfortable rejecting the foundations of knowledge that were presented to him and asking bold and innovative questions that were deeply appealing 
to reason to anyone who is willing to sit down, slow down, and think, which finally, at this point in history, Europe was just beginning to do. So in one just interesting paragraph that gives you a great sense of who Descartes is, he's going to say in Discourse on the Method, one of his main treaties, he'll say, I entirely abandon the study of letters, resolving to seek no knowledge other than that of which could be found in myself or else in the great book of the world. He's talking about the Bible there. I spent the rest of my youth traveling, visiting courts and armies, mixing with people of diverse temperaments and ranks, gathering various experiences, testing myself in the situations which fortune offered me, and at all times reflecting upon whatever came my way to derive some profit from it. So this is sort of Descartes' MO. He's a loner. He's a, a rejecter of society, and yet you kind of sense that sort of rock star, artistic, philosophical, bad boy genius. He's kind of saying, presenting himself, in contrast to all of society who sat under tutors, who were reading all of the great treaties on philosophy, he was going to wrestle with this himself. And as you may have noticed, Descartes was very clearly a Christian. He was happy, embracing his Christianity. Christianity would become part of the philosophy that he was using to shape what would be the future of the Enlightenment. So what is it that Descartes contributed? Well, famously, famously in his work, Discourse on the Method, he is attempting to arrive at a fundamental set of principles that one can know as true without any doubt. Doesn't that just sound appealing? Doesn't your ego swell when you think about the possibility that you could arrive at absolute certainty about some form of knowledge? In fact, you can even hear just a little bit in my story of being 16 years old, that what I was hoping for, what I was looking for is, is it possible for me to arrive at certainty in my identity? Is it possible for any of us to truly know who we are and what we believe? And so Descartes is going to, up to this point in history, do the most to press into this question explicitly. And one of the radical things he does is reject Aristotle, who up to this point had proposed that there are foundational principles that are unassailable, that can just be assumed and trusted, and that you can build your knowledge and science and understanding on top of. And so Descartes is going to be known as someone who has methodological skepticism. He is going to strategically and analytically doubt every facet of his belief system. And his proposal was that he was going to reject any idea any thought, any system, any structure that he could not be absolutely certain he knew. So he was the ultimate deconstructionalist. He was going to get rid of everything. He was going to rip the foundation of Western thought down to its core and see what was remaining. And so as he does this, he moves through, if we're being totally honest, pretty challenging thoughts still to a 21st century Christian, as well as really challenging thoughts to a 21st century atheist or agnostic as well. Descartes is going to press us that we don't really know that we can know anything. Think about, for instance, your senses. Can you trust what you see in front of you? Well, of course, the first instinct, the Aristotelian foundation is yes, your senses are to be trusted. But when you press into your senses, your senses are not capable of understanding or even being certain of everything that it sees. His famous image or analogy is going to be the stick that's placed into water. If you've ever done this when you were growing up along a creek or something, if you put a stick down into water, it looks like the stick is crooked because of the light refracting off of the water 
distorting the stick. And yet Descartes points to this and says, I mean, if this is true for a stick, and if any child can point out that our senses aren't always to be trusted, then surely this means that the world is not meant to just be accepted through the sensation of my eyes or touch, or even from the empirical knowledge of study, of scientific investigation into what things are. To rattle your cage a little bit with this one, I, I just want to point out that anyone who's read 20th and 21st century uh, post-Einstein physics can appreciate that Descartes saw more truly than even in his 16th, 17th century understanding he could realize. We really don't fully understand the substructure that which lies beneath the senses of the world around us. And Descartes was the first to open up the skepticism that was going to say, I don't know that my senses are all that should be trusted. As he pushes past his senses, though, the fascinating thing for someone in the 21st century to hear from Descartes is that the next thing he'll try to go to is that if his senses can't be trusted, well, then surely his beliefs, at least, his, his thoughts about himself, his core values, his convictions, surely the doctrines of Christianity can be trusted. And as he wrestles with this possibility, the, the abstract ideas, a sort of Plato sense of the forms can be inherently trusted or grasped onto, what he's going to realize is that it's possible a demon or some outside force could be deceiving him into thinking those beliefs are the best kinds of beliefs, but in actuality, those beliefs themselves are either twisted or they're distorted, or he thinks they make sense, he thinks they're right, but, but rationality, reason can be twisted by outside influencers. And for Descartes, it was clear that demons were tempting people all the time. And so the demonic needed to be factored in to his understanding of how thought and existence worked into identity itself. And so if demons made it so your belief systems couldn't be trusted, if your senses were sort of off the table and impossible to totally rely on, then what does Descartes have left? What keeps him from utter insanity or despair, ending his existence because none of it is reliable? Well, Descartes famously is going to arrive at this conclusion expressed in the Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum, which in English means, as I'm sure you've heard before, I think, therefore I am. So for Descartes, he's going to conclude, and this is important and it's just also sort of fascinating if you can hold the story of it. He concludes that if he doubted, then something or someone must be doing the doubting. So doubting for him provides an ironic sort of stability. Therefore, the very fact that he doubted proves his existence. And he's going to say this, this is a quote from uh, Discourse on the Method. The simple meaning of the phrase is that if one is skeptical of existence, that is in and of itself proof that he does, in fact, exist. There's so many things to point out here. I'm going to just try my best to hold a couple for you. The first is that skepticism becomes the foundation for understanding and insight. This is going to have huge consequences and one of the streams that's going to flow from Descartes' headwaters. Second, Descartes is going to move, importantly, the most basic form of knowledge and understanding into the mind, into thinking. I mean, notice how the phrase itself is formulated. I think, therefore I am. James K. Smith is going to call this the thinking being's approach to the world. And if you pay attention, all of the enlightenment, all of our scientific knowledge, all of modernity is going to be built around the sense in which to find understanding of the world, we must go into our minds, access our reason, 
that is the other side of skepticism. Skepticism is the negative consequence of reasoning, and reasoning to understanding is disproof of any skepticism. And there, in the interior, in that sort of inner space of consciousness, is where truth, is where knowledge, is where foundations for all of existence, including identity, are meant to be found. So Charles Taylor is going to describe this as interiority, the interiority of the self. And he's going to note that Descartes becomes this headwater basically for interiority to become the new king of the sciences, if you can forgive the masculine embodiment of interiority. Interiority is going to become this strong, forceful presence across all of Western thought, where at the end of the day, the external world is kind of difficult to know or trust, although we of course are going to attempt to investigate it, to master it, to wrestle it down into submission. But if we really want to know who we are, if we really want to understand something, if we really want to conquer existence, we're going to have to turn inward, inward to ourselves, inward into our thoughts, inward into our consciousness, inward into that inner being of either the soul or the heart or the subconscious, sort of whatever term you want to put on top of it. So what does all this mean? Why does all this matter? Where's all this going? Well, there's three interesting streams I've been mentioning that are going to flow from Descartes. The first may surprise you. I'm borrowing some of this, by the way, from Carl Truman, who's written a really helpful book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He goes into way more detail here. I think he does a good job with it. He's going to note that one of the most interesting places to figure out where our modern identity comes from is going to be this figure I hadn't had a lot of experience with until this past year named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was from Geneva, was himself a philosopher, he was a writer, he was a composer. This guy was an artist of artistes. He's going to be one of the forebearers of the French Revolution. He's going to be immensely pivotal when it comes to modern economic, political, and educational thought. And yet he's one of those figures, like I said, I've been sitting in philosophy for a while now, and I hadn't really done much deep engagement with him until just this past year. He is often under the radar and only increasingly starting to be highlighted as a key, a key component of what happens in identity. So Rousseau is going to live about 100 years after Descartes. So Descartes' thinking is going to be settled in, the headwaters have built up, and now the first river that's going to rush forth is quite a wide river. This is just a, a large flowing with lots of pressure and forcefulness behind its stream. But it's going to be pretty steady, pretty stable, and this river is going to be the river of romanticism. Romanticism. So Rousseau is fascinated with the inner experience of himself that Descartes has put him onto. And again, this is far more complicated than I'm summarizing. I'm trying to capture the flow of the story. There's a lot of deep diving you can do into this, and I know I'm not always qualifying things as accurately as I could. But the main thing to know about Rousseau, as he looks within himself, is that Rousseau is one of the first thinkers to become obsessed with articulately conveying a sense and pursuit of authenticity to himself. So famously, he's going to write this book that he entitles The Confessions. This is a clear play on Augustine's book that we're going to talk a lot more about in future episodes. But his point with The Confessions is that where Augustine goes to confess his sins before God, Rousseau goes to examine his inner world so that he can be as honest and true to who he's been this whole time 
according to himself. So Rousseau is one of the first ones to cut God out of the equation. And I'm just fascinated by this. I mean, you can see in Descartes, Descartes is himself a Christian. He's holding a lot of Christian doctrinal assumptions personally. That Descartes is not disagreeing with the doctrine of the Trinity, for instance. And yet Descartes, by his move to radical skepticism, he almost unwittingly is going to cut off God. And what Rousseau is left with is just his own inner self. You, you kind of get it. And this is because it's so deeply embedded in the world we're living in today. If you're honest, the only thing you seem to have as a resource is yourself, is this inner interiority, this understanding, experience, reflection on who you are. So Rousseau is going to put forth this radical notion, and he was seen as a radical, flamboyant artist in his day. But his radical notion is the best way to be human is to be as relentlessly true and confessional to who I am on the inside, to who I actually am. In fact, I'm going to search myself. I'm going to write myself. I'm going to become myself through my art, through my uh, writings, through really anything that is true to me. What I find inside, I'm going to be true to. And then when I am true to that, that is the purest form of actuality. That is the purest form of me becoming myself. So some of his radical ideas around education particularly was that Rousseau thought society was repressing the individual. Rousseau was convinced that society was giving all of these ethical rules, was putting all of these political contraptions overlaying individual people. And the best way to be human was to receive an education somehow of romantic authenticity, where you're trained not to conform to the rules and expectations of society as they present themselves to you, but instead for you to become true to who you truly are within. I mean, as I say that, that water, that stream, that current is clearly flowing today, is it not? I mean, that, but I don't even say that dismissively or critically. I say it impressed and humbled by the fact that Rousseau was able to articulate and set a trajectory out of the headwaters of Descartes' thinking to the point that all of us today, almost without questioning it, almost without even really pondering it, have just accepted that society should not tell us what we should be doing, that society cannot understand the true inner world of our own existence, and therefore the best thing we can probably do, even if we have a lot of other beliefs, even if we have a lot of other convictions, is figure out who we truly are inside. And here I can't help myself, I'll just turn briefly to contemporary culture to note that I was fascinated, fascinated by the recent release of Eternals, the Marvel movie, directed and written by Chloe Zhao, who just recently won an Oscar for her very profound and insightful No Man Land, uh, the uncomfortable watch of No Man Land. Chloe is clearly tuned into this kind of stuff, and yet if you listen to Eternals, what you find is Rousseau. What you find are these eternal beings who are each wrestling with how to be true to themselves. Each wrestling with what is what is the truth inside me? What is the truth to my experience? And at one point, a character literally says to another, like, I think... We all know we just need to be true to who we truly are. Now, I want to circle back to this later, but for now, just want to put the peg in the stream to note that where Rousseau's thoughts are going to flow is not only to uh, the individualism and democracy that will become so foundational 
to the United States in their revolution, but he is particularly going to flow into the French Revolution as one of the early figures and sources of romanticism that are going to funnel into this chaotic and utterly violent clash that takes place in France. And if you ever want to be horrified by the extremes of where something like individualism and romanticism and revolution can go, then just read a bit into how French society sort of welled up. It was like the stream that was flowing had this catastrophic waterfall in the French Revolution and caused a lot of people to realize we need to balance romanticism, this sort of open-ended script of Rousseau that every person should just do whatever feels most authentic to them. We're going to have to give it some more guardrails if society is going to continue after Rousseau's thought. But we'll come back to that in just a second. That's our first stream. The second stream, an immensely important stream, is going to be the stream of skepticism that flows from Descartes. So you heard in Descartes' thought that he has this radical posture of skepticism towards all of his beliefs, towards all of his sense perceptions. The water is going to build up and it's not just going to flow in the interiority and authenticity of romanticism. It's going to pour over into this sort of central stream that is going to be radical skepticism. So Paul Ricoeur, the great philosopher, is going to look at the 20th century and talk about the masters of suspicion. It took a while for the waters to begin bubbling up after Descartes around this vein of skepticism, this headwater of skepticism. But when they do, if the romantic stream is pretty calm and steady until the catastrophic waterfall of the French Revolution, the central stream, the central current is going to quickly become a whitewater rapid. I mean, the rocks of skepticism are going to make it impossible to traverse this stream without having an incredibly bumpy road. And to this day, skepticism is actually pretty well understood. We talk about it a lot in academic circles. There's a pretty strong grasp of uh, people sort of holding skepticism at bay when it comes to their own personal beliefs as philosophers today. And yet there's a real sense in which this is probably the most powerful current that has driven us into and is still feeding into the current waters of modern identity that we swim around in today. So what do we mean by skepticism? Particularly when it comes to skepticism, three names that almost always come up are Charles Darwin, Frederick Nietzsche, and Karl Marx. Fascinatingly, all three of these men are going to live almost exactly at the same time with each other. The youngest of them is Nietzsche, and he's going to kind of build off of the foundations of what Darwin and Marx were both wrestling with. But to move chronologically, Darwin, of course, is famous for his evolutionary hypothesis. The real insight when it just comes to a sense of self, though, that Darwin is going to contribute, and in some ways maybe the most popular, uh, most enduring from this stream of just someone's thinking who really caused a strong divot in how Western thought and identity works. Darwin is going to question God's involvement in creation, right? There is a cut, uh, another cut, that if Descartes' skepticism unwittingly cut God out of the equation, Darwin's is going to somewhat knowingly, even though he himself would still hold uh, to Christian belief, I'm pretty sure he died receiving the last rite in the church. Darwin is going to very intentionally slice from a empirical and from a scientific perspective that the world can be inhabited without requiring God's existence for your identity. Out of Darwin, we now have to wrestle with all these implications, not just of who God is, who we are before God, but now post-Darwin, we're wrestling with what it means to be homo sapien, 
what evidence archaeologically we have, how much mastery we can quickly attain of this evolutionary process in which we participate. And of course, one of the most thrilling and terrifying aspects of Darwin's thought is the possibility that we as a species are not yet done evolving, that there is more evolution to go. That thought from Darwin is going to flow quite nicely into Karl Marx. Marx is going to do with politics what Darwin did with science. So Marx is going to see all of reality as material. In the material world, he sees this contest between those who own capital, who he calls the bourgeoisie, and the proletariat, who are the working force that are manufacturing the materials that the bourgeoisie possess. And so in this contest, what Marx sees as inevitable is that at some point, the proletariat have to realize that they are being used, that they are being enslaved to the bourgeoisie. And in this enslavement, the antagonism and the insight is going to inevitably lead to the instability and crisis of revolution in which a communist society is one where the proletariat, the working force, the working class of society, rise up, they reject the capitalist owners who are possessing all of the material goods, and in rejecting the bourgeoisie, the proletariats are then going to create what sounds a lot like a utopian society, a society where everyone owns everything, it's all shared, uh, each according to their need. There's a sense in which society is finally equally distributed. Everyone does work as they are able. Each person contributes with the work that they are capable of contributing. There's a sense with Marx where he just leaves this open-ended, this open-ended utopia. He doesn't exactly spell out how this is all going to work or where all this is going to go. And so he leaves open then the possibility in this radical idea, this radically skeptical idea that uh, all those who possess capital are in fact using their capital as an abuse of those who are the proletariat, and that revolution is inevitable. That revolution is a necessary outworking of all class struggles. That's key for Marx. In this radical skepticism of necessary revolution, what is going to take place, of course, are, are some radical liberations where in the 20th century after Marx dies, monarchies and empires and governments are going to be overthrown. It's quite exhilarating. It's quite uh, intoxicating almost for many who hold communist ideologies and beliefs because the promised outcome, that utopian society, sounds so good. It really deeply resonates in the heart of any who read Marx's communist work. But the challenge, the inevitable challenge, is that as people like Lenin and Stalin and later Mao Zedong in China are going to start working this system out, it inevitably becomes a system in which the necessary revolution of the proletariat creates a new government class that rules society with a far tighter iron fist, which has been given permission to own no longer a privately owned capital, but governmentally owned society can then be bribed, can be regulated in its own way, can be distributed according to how the government sees fit. And in Russia, I mean, there's still, I still can't get my head around how staggering the Soviet Union era of Russia was that most estimate over a hundred million Russians were killed by the Russian government. This wasn't a, a neighboring power that came in to execute. This wasn't a genocide where one people group 
rose up and it was ethnically based. Instead, it was the people's own representative government that was, of course, forcefully taken by violence that was going to wipe out such an a staggering number of people in order to justify and pursue its own ends. So if the French Revolution is this terrifying waterfall, the Soviet Communist Party would definitely be another, even as, of course, th this is very real and on working. The reason why communism is worth leaning into, why Marxism is worth reading, is that the Marxist principle of skepticism, the skepticism that says, am I being repressed? And do I, in order to free myself from repression, need to throw off the oppressing class, need to revolt against those who are oppressing me? That impulse, just as much as Romanticism and Rousseau, is still alive and active today. And that's going to lead us to our final skeptic, Nietzsche. I have to admit that I always heard Nietzsche set up as the villain, as the atheistic, anti-God, God is dead, radical skeptic that sought to undermine the foundation of Western Christianity. And in some ways, to be totally fair, he is. That is exactly the prophetic role that Nietzsche was attempting to embody in himself and in his writings. But if you ever have a chance to read Nietzsche, read Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Beyond Good and Evil, Twilight of the Idols, The Antichrist, any of his core works, they are stunningly insightful bold and powerful. I mean, he was just a compelling writer. He was incredibly thoughtful and well-trained in the history of Western thought. And so this man knew what he was talking about. And while his aim was certainly pointed in the direction of Christianity, and while the results of the waters that rolled down from him, or maybe the bullet that was fired by Nietzsche's gun, the truth is, Nietzsche was not always off in what he was critiquing because Nietzsche was skeptical not just of Christianity, but of the Western foundation, the Western foundation of Descartes and this sense of interiority, the sense of absolute certainty, and this sense of scientific progress and advancement that was being trumpeted in Nietzsche's day as the inevitable progress of Christendom, as the inevitable progress of humanity, as the inevitable progress of what it meant to be a person. And Nietzsche both flips it and plays into it by suggesting that at the core of what it means to be human, ultimately, the only play taking place is not necessarily Darwin's play between natural forces and evolution is not necessarily Karl Marx's play between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, but what Nietzsche sees taking place is this play of desire and power. And so for Nietzsche, it was all about the will to power, the sense in which Christianity and all of Western society was holding you back as an individual and the most radical, the most defiant in fact, the truest thing you could do is to throw off the forces that were resisting you and exert your will to power against whatever force was standing in your way. And so for Nietzsche particularly, he's talking less politically than he is just even focused personally. Although, of course, Nietzsche would be used politically, particularly by Adolf Hitler and Nazism and the Third Reich as they went to develop and advance Nietzsche's concept of the Ubermann, the superhuman, the one who exerts their will over all of society, the society that exerts their will over all of Europe. But for Nietzsche, this is kind of personal. And in the personality of it, he, he's seeing identity 
as ultimately this sense in which other forces are working against you. And the only trajectory, the only vision he can offer in a radically skeptic way is that he is skeptical of anything that tries to tell you you must do what that force or pressure says. And he points out to you on a foundational ultimate basis, the only sense of yourself you need to know is what you can do, what you can exert, what will you can establish against another. And while that is a terrifying thought and is entirely antithetical to Christianity, you unfortunately see that while Nietzsche is much critiqued today, and a few would say they are full-blown followers of Nietzsche, there's this realism there in Nietzsche's insight that I always find myself grappling with, that Nietzsche was staring so honestly at what it means to be human. He was staring at identities, and he was ultimately saying either some force, some pressure is going to exert its identity against you. It's going to enslave your identity to the will and desire of what that force is exerting, be it Christianity or capitalism or your family or your job. And the ultimate permission Nietzsche is trying to give you is to say, your only hope is to throw off that force, to reject that force on the basis of skepticism, that it's simply a force, it's not actually in control of you. And when you reject that power, you find your own power, this radical power of becoming in which you seize your own identity. You become precisely who you and your will determine yourself to be. And I think what I've seen this play out is that powerful sense of self where someone walks into a room and begins to just command people around. And that reality in which most of the time, few stand up to a bully. Few are truly going to resist the power of a will that is exerting itself with command in your presence. And so Nietzsche has this terrifying insight. Uh, he's going to die alone almost insane, possibly because he had contracted syphilis. I mean, he was a haunted, haunted figure, a tragic figure. And yet Nietzsche is so important because he is going to set up in the stream of skepticism, the personal element in which you determine you are your own master. You have your fate standing in your hands. So if that's our second stream of skepticism, what's the final stream? Well, final stream is going to come in the psychology of Sigmund Freud. You could loop Freud in with skepticism. Freud used radical skepticism from Descartes. He used the skepticism of Nietzsche and Marx, but he turned that skepticism inward. And while again, Freud, like many of these thinkers, is not currently celebrated. Few would say they endorse most of Freud's system or beliefs. The profound insight of Freud is that he took interiority, the quest for interiority, the quest for inner happiness to its logical extreme. So this final river is just going to be a deep and powerful rushing current that I would argue has overwhelmed our 21st century search for identity because Freud is going to ultimately say that every person's primary quest, primary desire is for happiness. And happiness, he argues, is not to be found externally in either possessions or in jobs or in money or in relationships. But happiness, as any of us who have tasted happiness could say, is ultimately going to be found within. So as Freud turns his skepticism inwards, he is going to see all struggles, all desire for happiness as an inner struggle of the self where we are questing to master 
and to express this sort of chaotic, tumultuous internal world which we have. And so Freud is famously going to split the conscious from consciousness, subconsciousness, and unconsciousness, which are really now fully embraced. Anyone you talk to understands what you're talking about if you say, is that what's going on in your subconscious? And yet this is a Freudian invention. Freud also is going to talk about the ego, the id, and the superego as this warring sense of contest between your inner primal desires and your rational control of this inner world. So he's sort of saying the superego is when you fully take over and control the primal desires that you find within you. And yet the weird part about Freud that is significant for where we are today is that Freud, in highlighting the search for happiness and turning that search inward, Freud is going to note that the most powerful expression of happiness he observes is sexual expression, is the culminating pleasure of, I think he talks about it as genital stimulation, right? Very scientific. And he's going to frame all of his theories of what it means to be in relationship with your mother, with your father, with your siblings, uh, with your spouse, with your children, as this constant inner struggle of you trying to seek your own happiness through sexual expression and you constantly wrestling with the strictures and the restrictions and the ethical restraints that society has put around your sexuality. So there's this very important work by Freud called Civilization and its Discontent. And he basically suggests that all of society is created to control your sexual urges. And his solution, his sort of trajectory that he's setting with therapy is that he's trying to do work with you to figure out the way you can maximize your happiness, the way you can maximize your sexual expressiveness while still limiting the damage, the harm, and the disruption you cause to the broader society around you. And now what that means, how that plays out is where most people lose Freud uh, and walk away from Freud's thought. Yet where I would observe Freud continues to be a powerful force, where the waters from Freud have flowed into our modern questions of identity, are that if you watch Friends or How I Met Your Mother or even The Office or almost any basic popcorn sitcom popular television show, what I would observe is that for the last 20, 30 years, all television, most movies are centered around this quest for sexual expression and satisfaction, right? If you honestly pay attention to friends, it can actually be a little disturbing that you realize, oh, the the whole point of each of the friends' existence is to have sex with somebody. And that theme is sort of drawn out even more pointedly in How I Met Your Mother that Ted wants to be married and so wants to have sex with the right woman, which of course, Freud would say is great and is a way to achieve happiness. And yet around Ted, there's this swirl over a number of seasons and years where he is telling his children, as the show often likes to make fun of, the fact that he has sought out this happiness in a number of different sexual partners uh, in a constant quest to satisfy one of the great achievements that can be done in your 20s or 30s, according to 21st century American culture, is to have a sexually consummate experience, a stimulation of your genitals, as Freud would say it. So why I point that out is just to note the waters are flowing from these thinkers. The the waters have not stopped flowing. And if anything, I don't think we always understand that the water we're just swimming in naturally, the classic example of the fish where one fish says to another, uh, how's the water taste around here? And the fish says, what's water? 
This is the culture. This is the moment. This is the identity pool we are waiting around in. You have the flows of authenticity and romanticism. You have this powerful, very disruptive force of skepticism coming from Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche. And then you have this strong ebb of sexual desire and happiness. That is this inner quest from Freud. And it's all going to culminate in this confusing sense of self, this confusing question that when I sat down at 16 and asked, who am I really? What I didn't know was that while I had Christ and union with Christ and my Christian identity as a factor, I was swimming in a pool in a great big lake whose currents were just being buffeted backwards and forwards who, as I would go to college, I would be swept up into the pursuit of authenticity myself as I sought to get married, as I sought to find a job that made me personally satisfied and happy. I mean, why is it that I became a pastor? Well, because I, in my inner being, sensed the need to become a pastor. And I, of course, would flow under radical skepticism that almost immediately upon hitting the university campus, I was going to get hit with question after question that I was asking myself, questions about how can I know that that's true? How can I trust these forces, be it my parents or my friends or my previous church that were directing me? How can I trust my job? How can I trust my boss? How can I trust any of these thinkers that I'm reading right now? And then finally, this inner sense in which I constantly was subjected to the ebbs and flows, the whims and fancies of my own inner sense of happiness that could be even related oftentimes to sexuality and yet more practically was related to these ebbs and flows of depression, to ebbs and flows of discontentment, ebbs and flows of anger, of betrayal, of frustration, of some relationships that fell apart, some relationships that just felt distant and cold, some work environment, some living conditions that I was being told were not good enough, could be better, could look nicer, could have more, could be more. And so you bring all of those forces that are pressuring our identity into the 21st century. And here's hopefully where, if you've made it this far in the episode, here's where the payoff can happen. I think that there are four markers that are the standard identity answer by our culture. And these markers are going to be displayed on both the far right, so those who are Trumpers, who are white nationalists, who are extremely conservative, who are watching Fox News, And on the far left, those who are woke, progressives, those who are championing everything from LGBTQ plus ideologies all the way to the Occupy Wall Street to the rest. And my point is not actually to disparage either, but to notice that they are in fact together when it comes to questions of identity. And they're choosing to answer in the 21st century key questions that I don't think many of us even know we were being told we had to answer. So as I draw attention to this, I just want there to hopefully be this sigh of recognition, a little bit of relief that if you've struggled with your identity, if you've struggled with answering this question of identity, if you were to go back over with a comb and sort of brush out where your identity has come from up to this point in your existence, you would begin to realize these four markers have been pressed up against you. And while sometimes they are helpful, and sometimes they even are truly reflective of a Christian heritage, grounded in the scriptures, grounded in a theology of God, they are not always helpful when it comes to answering the question I wrote in my journal, who am I really? So what are the four markers? First, I would argue that one of the primary markers of modern identity is authenticity. You've heard this flow from Rousseau. When it comes to expressing yourself, when it comes to being yourself, when it comes to who you truly are, the best 
the most powerful, the most true thing you can do is to look inside, right? Because you're not looking outside. You're not doing what a lot of societies and cultures in the East would do, where they look outside to the stability and health of their family. They look outside to the stability and health of their community. They look outside them to the role that they have to play that offers purpose and meaning in the society they find themselves. No, you look inside. When you look inside, the question you are immediately asked is, is that authentic? Is that true to who I am? Okay, first marker, authenticity. The second marker, very connected, is freedom of expression. Freedom of expression. This is the marker that tells you in order for you to be truly authentic, right? If you're actually going to be authentic to who you are, you have to be free to express that authenticity. In fact, you must express that authenticity. So if you don't express that which is authentic or true within you, then the obvious skeptical response is that you are repressed. You are repressed. So interestingly, in freedom of expression, this is one of the real tension points in the polarity of American politics right now. And I know I'm speaking in generalizations, but just hear me out here. The extreme left and the extreme right are both insisting in contradictory ways to each other the same basic premise and value, which is that they should be free to express their authenticity, right? For the white nationalist, they demand the freedom to express their needs. Uh, there's even a Nietzschean sense of will to power in which they see if I can enact my needs to be prioritized on a political scale, on a cultural scale, on a communal scale, then I demand the right, the freedom to express myself culturally. And equally, if we're being honest, the left is doing the exact same thing that those who are fighting over gendered pronouns, those who are reworking categories of conversation when it comes to male and female bathrooms, when it comes to sexuality in a broader public discourse, when it comes to social welfare, health, taxes, there's this demand that every individual should be free to express their authentic self however they deem it appropriate to express themselves and both, both justify this freedom of expression by ignoring the question, the challenging question, which is not an easy question to resolve, the question of how society might need to be restricted, how some authenticity must be restricted, how some freedom must be restricted, even as Freud saw it in all of his lunacy, if society is going to continue. And so the contest in actuality is not so much a contest between those who are right and those who are wrong. It is a contest on this very morally gray scale of warring factions, warring tribes, fighting over identity. And the challenge is that as much as I know you will disagree with that summary, especially if you have any stakes loaded on either side, the truth of the matter is Nietzsche and Foucault and those who would follow Nietzsche they would say, all you're doing is trying your best to express yourself, to establish your right over another. There is no moral framework. There's no sense of guidance from the divine. There's no right. There's no wrong here. You just do your best to take over and enact power and cause a revolution. This is the Marxian, the Darwinistic, the Nietzschean frame that we have inherited. And it is playing itself out every political cycle every challenging conversation that takes place publicly, even in the back alleys of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. This is the war over identity. In a way, this challenge over the question of who actually is free to express themselves, what authenticity actually is, that challenge is the great ethical 
enigma, mystery, that is going to continue to cause major crisis every time we go to vote, every time that we go to fight over what we call certain holidays, who gets the right and the power to name what, and I am not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong to step into this cause and to pick up this fight. I just am trying to analyze and observe my own interior pressure, ironically, of course, that I feel like the most important thing for my identity is to be authentic and to be free to express that identity. And all I've been forced to ask, the more work I've done on this, is are these actually the best questions to be asking of my identity? Is this really where the best source of stability, of peace, of alignment with the triune God of the universe is to be found? Let me give you the final two. If authenticity and freedom of expression are the first two markers of identity, the third, interestingly, is recognition. Recognition, this is where we're getting into the deep cuts of political contests, but the politics of recognition is the sense in which, and I found this really helpful when it was first explained to me, the sense in which in order for your authenticity to become real, because it's just sitting there inside you, right? It's just your own sense of self. No one else can confirm what you're feeling. In order for it to become real, it needs to be expressed. So that's where the freedom is entailed. Uh, we need to be free to express what's, what's there. But we still, we still don't fully know if what we've just expressed is real or not real unless someone, now it could be a friend, it could be a family member, it could probably be society as a whole, someone must recognize and therefore affirm the reality of what it is I've experienced what it is that I'm conveying is authentic to me. So in a nutshell, recognition is where every culture war battle has taken place. And again, look at it on the right and the left. Clearly on the left, you've got LGBTQ questions in the transgender community of what biological gender actually is. And as much as I am deeply, deeply sympathetic to wrestling with gender dysphoria, which is truly uh, every account I've read, every conversation I've had is just distressing. The challenge is that the contest is actually over recognition, right? The contest is not so much a control of what a person's feeling authentically inside them. The contest is over whether or not society will recognize what a person feels to be true within them as now externally verified by the society around them. The reason why this is so important is that it highlights the deep vulnerability of every question of identity. It highlights that your identity is not actually your identity. It is our identity. It's society's recognized identity. And that, of course, is why contests are being played out. On the right, uh, I would just point to the example of abortion and the question around when an embryo can consist of becoming a person, of being recognized as a life. And this is what's interesting. On the left, the challenge is that recognition is given and prioritized for the mother, for the woman. And it was a very clever political move on the left to highlight this flow of feminine identity and choice. And again, I'm not saying that there isn't something deeply compelling in that, but the right's argument then in response is the question of what happens if you fail to recognize human life in the embryo. What does it signify about human life when human life is not recognized? Okay, we've gone through enough politics now to end with the fourth marker of identity, of modern identity, which is self-assertion. Self-assertion is the recognition that if authenticity is required, if you have the freedom to express yourself, if you require recognition, then the noblest or the most 
compelling thing you can do with your identity is to assert it. It's heroic for you to press your identity outwards. And here, Tim Keller has highlighted a good point that in traditional society, someone who pressed their identity outwards, who heroically enacted their identity in opposition to their family or to society, who said, these are my needs and my needs demand to be met and be recognized and affirmed in my capacity and my way. That character in traditional society would be labeled a villain. Now, I've already brought up Eternals. Eternals highlights, ironically, that the one character who becomes the villain at the end of the movie is the one who insists on not asserting himself against the overarching powers and forces that are pressing in around humanity that exists on Earth. I won't spoil any more than that, but I just want to acknowledge this vision of heroic self-assertion is one that is being reinforced to us over and over and over again, so that I, I would just observe casually on Twitter that it is incredibly common when you go on Twitter that the thing that gets the most responses, the thing that is labeled as most compelling, the thing that is celebrated and recognized as most triumphant is, of course, any time that someone has resisted their family, any time that someone has rejected their parents. It's why deconstruction and ex-evangelicals are a powerful, growing subforce on Twitter because they are known, they are presenting themselves in alignment with this very Nietzschean will to power narrative that says the most compelling thing we can do is to label ourselves as an identity against that which had previously formed us. So what do we say to that? How do we respond to this moment? Here's what I'm struck by anytime I lean in to the work on identity. I am struck that we are in a very unstable moment. We are in an unstable moment, which is why I think at the very least you could agree with me Identity is inherently contested right now on a cultural level. Identity is inherently polarizing as it is being increasingly expressed on platforms like Facebook, Twitter, social media. And in that increasing polarity, it's actually going to put more and more pressure on each of us to identify who we are, to step into these four markers, to frame ourselves. So for instance, why is it authentic for you? to be a Christian? Why is it authentic for you to embody the gender that you possess? Why is it authentic for you to hold to the political party that you hold to? Why is it authentic for you to eat where you choose to eat, to buy the clothes where you choose to to buy your clothes, to have friendships where you choose to have friendships? And if the question is, why is it authentic to you? Well, then the pressure becomes, so now you need to tell us, you need to constantly be expressing that. You have freedom. You must be expressing it. Your expression will only be solidified if you're recognized for it. So your friends better support it. Your friend, you better be aligned with what your friends agree about your identity. And the most heroic thing you can do is increasingly distance and isolate yourself from beliefs that came before until, of course, tragically, you realize the only way to keep going down this path is to just keep asserting heroically over and over and over again until you've rejected all outside forces that are directing where your identity should flow. If you have any resonance with that sense of anxiety, and instability, then my hope in this episode is just to give some clarity, some understanding, and some insight where this is coming from. I'm not telling you what you have to believe because, of course, that would be utterly inauthentic of me to do, and you wouldn't listen to me even if I did. But what I'm hoping you can see is that these questions did not float neutrally to our innate sense of what it means to be human. These questions instead have been 
formed for a long time are built, are layered on a number of very complex ideologies that have competing aims and interests. And these ideas have caused immense, immense damage and destruction in the past, which doesn't mean that some of them aren't good. Doesn't mean that there isn't even something Christian to many of these values. It just does mean that we need to be intentional and careful. And 16-year-old John, who was asking the question, who am I, needed help when it came to answering the question, what is my identity? So here's maybe the last thing that I want to end with before we turn to Augustine and turn to a deeper cut on Christian practices. There are, I think, five reasons why these four markers of identity don't work. And again, just forgive me, three to four to five, but here it goes. I think five reasons why this crisis of identity isn't working for us is first, it's an incoherent identity. The problem is when you look inside yourself, you're going to see a lot of competing forces. And depending on the day, you might be interested in buying some new shoes. You might be interested in promoting a cause against climate change. You might be interested in getting a new job and you might have some friends that you want to go hang out with this afternoon. And inherently within those tensions, what you're going to find is that there is no actual authentic you. There is no sense of you dwelling underneath. Instead, they're competing values. And ultimately, the way you're going to decide which value you want to live out of is when you place the grid of your friendships and of the culture around you and ask the culture and your friends what it will recognize as valuable and worthy of affirmation. So that then leads to my second reason why identity won't work in our modern understanding. Inherently, an authentic, free-to-express, recognition-based identity is going to be unstable. You are not going to be able to retain or hold on to the identity that you currently have now because as time goes on, your identity is going to keep changing and you're going to increasingly sense this feeling of fragmentation inside you where who you are now doesn't look like who you were 10 years ago. And your temptation in that instability is going to be to reject all of who you previously were. But the fear that's going to sit there in the back of your mind is that if you reject your past self now, what is your future self going to do to the person you are in the present? I think this is the inherent sense of anxiety that's sitting within so many of us in our current state of identity. We assume that this is the most authentic version of me, and yet we know deep down inside there is more of me that's going to keep coming, and it is simultaneously incoherent, but it's also unstable. I don't know who I am going to be, and so I am constantly living at the whims and fancies of others. Third reason this identity won't work, it's an illusion. It's illusory. If you say your feelings if you say your inner sense of self is concrete, you're going to recognize eventually that there is nothing concrete that you actually were attaching yourself to other than a whim or desire in the moment. This is sort of the fascinating thing with Sigmund Freud, that he put so much emphasis on momentary sexual pleasure and he missed, he missed that so much else is going on in the dynamics of human relationship, like love, like respect, like intimacy, like conversation, like connectedness, like belonging. So Freud is going to be driven to hypothesize that underneath our conscious is our unconscious, and he's going to spend all of his time trying to sort out what the ebbs and flows of the unconscious are. If you've ever seen the Rorschach test where someone's lying on their back, they're given an image, and they're meant to just say what immediately flows to the top. The challenge with Freud's theory, as people have 
attempted to replicate it, as they've studied it, as they've done it over and over again, is that they just increasingly realize there is nothing there in the subconscious that we can grasp onto. They're not actually concrete. It's not tactile in there in your own person. If we're being honest with ourselves, it's always fleeting. It's always flowing. It's always moving. That doesn't mean that there aren't, of course, some insights to be gained from meditating, from exploring, from even talking about your dreams and asking what sort of influence they play. But just to ponder for a minute that all of psychology is built on this foundation where it's not even the conscious and the subconscious, but Freud actually acknowledges there is an unconscious, a sense of self that you cannot access. I think in that sense, when we try to plumb down to what is real, when we try to find what is truly authentic to us, the challenge I would make to you is that there is not actually anything real inside you. There, there's not anything so concrete, so tactile, so specific that it can't at some point change. And if you're being honest with yourself, you know the person you are today is so different than the person you were 10 years ago. And so you have to hold the tension, the anxiety-producing tension, that at some point, the incoherentness, the instability, and the illusory nature of your feelings are going to be difficult to depend upon for an identity you need to navigate the complexities of your life. Reason number four, I've been alluding to this, it's just huge pressure to try to form this kind of identity. It was huge pressure for me at 16. It was huge pressure at 19. It was huge pressure for me at 25, 26. And it was huge pressure for me as a Christian. All I want to empathize with in this episode is that if you continue to veer off from a Christian path, we're going to talk in future episodes about what a theological response to this crisis of modern identity might be. What you're going to find is that all of the pressure that Nietzsche puts is a pressure on you to will and enact your own sense of self, and it's going to be crushing. It's just going to keep crushing you if you are the one who has to justify your own existence time and time again. So final reason, in some sense, the modern identity you have or seek to possess will always exclude another. This is the real challenge of the politics of recognition. This is the real challenge, the unwritten challenge to the left and to the right. No matter how heroic you want to present yourself, the real tension point of this modern identity is that at some point you have to exclude and reject others in order to be authentic and express and assert yourself. Ultimately, what you're going to find is that in your exclusion, you are going to lose relationships, lose key relationships that you could have retained if only you had a different framing for what your identity requires. So if that's a quick fire list, reasons why modern identity is in crisis, reason why this version of the four markers of modern identity is not going to work for you, is that this identity is incoherent, it's unstable, it's illusory, it's huge pressure, and it's ultimately excluding. I think there's more that needs to be said. I think there's hope that needs to be grasped, and I don't think we are as alone as we sometimes are led to believe when it comes to identity and this current cultural moment. But in order to get there, the journey I want to take is to first step over to Christian practices. I've been fascinated by this question of how Christian practices shape and form who we are and our identity. And I'm actually going to argue there's a reason why Christian practices are failing to form our identity 
deeply enough when it comes to the current cultural pressure. And in order to respond to that failure, last move I wanna make, a move that I hope will be worthwhile to you, is a move to Augustine, a move specifically to Augustine's Confessions. And if you're up for it, I wanna take you on a reading through the Confessions. I wanna take you on the journey of what Augustine theologized about identity and yourself, the directions that he gave, the complexities that he unearths, and hopefully, hopefully a stronger sense of yourself against the pressures of the headwaters that are flowing towards you through these three streams. A stronger sense of yourself that's not dependent on these four markers of identity. A stronger sense of yourself that is not inherently unstable, incoherent, illusory, excluding, and crushing. So, join me next episode as we continue this search for identity as we turn next to Christian practices, St. Augustine.